out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Simon Rivers, who was in and probably formed the um, last party and also Bitter Springs and has done lots of other stuff with people um, like the Subway Sec and much, much more. So look, this is the interview and after several minutes of exciting but casual chat, we got down to that very, very fascinating subject that was the early formative years. You knew I was going to say that. Anyway, look, Simon, it's over to you. Oh, just one part. This is part one because um, for various reasons we had to stop. Well, that was my problem. And then part two is coming up very soon. Well, I think being a year older than you, it's (laughs) all the same stuff, really. I mean, when I was small, me and my cousin Jeff, I don't know how old we were, we both went out and spent money on records. I bought a Slade album. He bought a Bowie one. I can't remember which which albums they were, but I didn't, I preferred Bowie. So we swapped. Yes. He preferred Slade. So he got the Slade one and I preferred Bowie. So I think it was probably um, Hunky Dory. Oh. I seem to remember. And then I got quite ill and I had, again, I had um, appendicitis. So I spent quite a lot of time at home and, and I just played Hunky Dory constantly. Right. That might really made a massive impression on me when I was little. Yeah. Like lyrically and all, because if you think Hunky Dory had so many ideas in it lyrically, and it mentioned Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, Andy song, for, song for Zimmerman, Warhol. Yeah, it was kind of an education of all things artistic as well. Yes, and, I know. And the, and the songs were great on that as well. Like, I don't think that's probably my favorite Bowie album. Uh, obviously, often it's your entry point isn't it to 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 a an artist that becomes your favorite one a lot of the time and that was i was absorbed with that so yes well i'm I, guessing I, I suppose with space oddity the b-side had um changes and uh, velvet goldmine i thought b-sides were all going to be that good i was disappointed from then on yeah <laughs> well yeah velvet yeah they were great tracks but yeah. that was yeah that was an ep wasn't it i remember they because yeah. Space Oddity was released a few times. It, is, it, was, it, it was, was reissued, I think, or re-released in 74 or 75. And that's when I saw it on top of the pops and was a bit amazing. Yeah, it was a strange thing because Bowie, if he'd have been around today, starting out, he'd have been on X Factor and stuff like that because he would try anything to be famous. If you go back to his early <laughs> incarnations, which I loved, I loved, I loved his early stuff. Later yeah. on, I listened to, you know, which you just thought, oh, the laughing gnome, that was that was just embarrassing. But he did the stuff around that time that was like Anthony Newley. He Anthony was, Newley, yes, absolutely. And uh, Little Bombardier and songs like that. And When I Live My Dream, you can get all that in one album now. Yeah, Dream, that's right. It's kind Yeah, of- and, and, and I like all that stuff, all my, but just as much as some of the, the later stuff. I don't I know, know why, yeah, that sort and of musical. Then, then he found Lindsay Kemp and... Angie Bowie and then Tony DeFreeze came. Yeah, out. I mean, he, he was a great, like, he soaked up everything around him. Uh, that's what I was saying, you know. Today, he would have probably been on X Factor and wouldn't have got through the first round or something because, and then he'd have tried something else. But yes. So, were, was, you, 
Were you guess, Sorry, getting kind of intrigued into music at this stage? I mean, was that something that you started either singing or playing guitar? Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, music has always been around with us. Dad had um, excellent record collection of like all old Rolling Stones things and that. Um, Tom Jones, anything from Tom Jones albums and uh, Charlie Pride, a lot of country people, Johnny nice. Cash. Um, and we used to just grab all his albums and play them when he wasn't around because he, he wouldn't like and jazz. He had so much like early New Orleans type jazz. That was his favourite because him and my mum used to go jiving over um, Pie Island. I don't know if you know Pie Island no. in Twickenham. No, it's no. where groups like the Stones and that used to play. But before that, it was a jazz club. Right. Yes. Um, well... And, well, when would that be? The 50s? Yeah, the 50s, that would have been. Or even the early 60s. And then groups like Genesis played there. A lot of groups on the on the way up sort of played there. And, and the, the Stones, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's but yeah, so music was was a big part of our growing up. And yeah. the Top 40 radio with Tony Blackburn. Used to love listening to that. Well, on a Sunday evening, wasn't it? Sort of seven That's o'clock, it. we had the countdown for the top 40. And mm. we were very excited because actually songs stayed in the charts for sort of months, didn't they? They'd only move one or two places up or down. So you had quite... really interesting songs then as well. You know, you'd have like uh, the Red Baron, Snoopy versus the Red Baron and uh, <laughs> uh, all, these, yeah. all these weird songs that had yes. stories in them. I loved the ones with stories in, you know, like. Ghost was, in my house and all that sort of stuff. There were some also those ones. There was a Telly Savalas one, and there was one about a pack of cards when some soldier was. Oh yeah, Max Bygraves. The pack of cards in the church, and then he that was hilariously it. bad, wasn't it? <laughs> the king, the king reminds me of, and all this one at the. The Queen reminds me of my dear old mum. It was all yeah. that sort of stuff, wasn't yeah. it? Really, and there was another one about the really the, corny. The, the child who gives the mum sort of a bill for all the work he's done, you know, around this house. And then she sort of goes back and says, you know, for oh, sort of yes. birth, no change, you know, for sort of... No what, charge, it was called. No, oh, no charge, God. And J.J. That, J. 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 Barry or something, what was that by? It was just an extraordinary song that, that I've never listened to since 19-something, 70-something. But they're, they're the ones that are really good because they're like a little story. I mean, that's really corny, that one, isn't it? Yes, oh, I, 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 yeah. I do like the sort of. I, I hate to hear a record. I'm really, um, uh, what's the word, critical about lyrics and stuff. And if, if, if it does, if there's one line in it that just seems it's been put in like gratuitously and doesn't add any thought about it, I get kind of ah, uh, that puts me off straight away. You know, even, yes. even people I really like, you know, I don't know, it's a group. I like the Cribs, but some of their lines are really rubbish and. Baxter Jury, for instance, like I think he sings a load of nonsense, but I just like the sort of the sound of, and even the uh, Sleep of Mods, when they they just bung in a lot of references references to, you know, they're almost like the Peter Kay of um, sort of indie punk, where they bung in references to Treeball Mints or you know like Welcome Mindy. It's just all action men, and they bring up stuff from the old days, you know, like Sesame Street. <laughs> Which I like, I love them. I really like them. You know, yeah. I, I, I I did a gig with Vic Goddard, and I was just singing with Vic at this gig, and we were supporting Sleeve for Mods, and they're a really nice couple of lads. But you know, like I say, I'm really kind of critical about if lyrics annoy me, then yes, quite. I don't stop going on about it to anyone who listen. 
God, you must have had a lot of fun with Led Zeppelin and things like that. Sort of oh, God, so, yeah. yeah so I, know. <laughs> I know, they are quite bizarre, aren't they? The Queen, mm. the queen and um, stuff. And, um, anyway, that's all great. So look, during the, so we had the punk period. Actually, you were probably quite young during punk as well. But you might have, yeah. you might have yeah, been yeah. in London at that stage. So that might have had a more of an effect. I was brought up in the countryside in East Anglia. We did not have punk. Well, we were a little too too young for punk. I think I was about 14, maybe, when it was really yes. kicking in. And we couldn't re weren't really allowed to go to gigs then. I suppose we could have found our way in. If, by the time we were going to gigs, uh, the real punk wave was sort of over. And the main, you know, when we started going to lots of gigs, it would be the Gang of Four and Fall and people like that, just post-punk. Yes. That's when well, we were reg regularly old enough to go to gigs. I suppose uh, before it, uh, that, we would go because we lived near Hammersmith, and we would go and see anyone who would play at the Odeon. So we'd see people like I don't know, not Clanad. Who uh, we'd go and watch anyone. We'd say, so Tom Robinson band we saw there, but that was cool because we liked them anyway. Yeah. Um, oh, what's lots of folk group Camel. Camel, they're very arty progs. Yeah. Any Soft anyone folk. who was playing at the Odeon that we could get in at the back and just watch. Steel Eye Span. Still, yeah, it wasn't them. It was another folk group that, that had a hit. God, my memory's getting terrible. Renaissance. Now, that was it. it. Was Renaissance? That was Northern it. Lights. Classic. We saw them there. <laughs> uh, yes. In fact, first gig Kim ever went to, I took her to see Tangerine Dream at Hammersmith Odeon. My God, that was. She must have been the only woman in the audience. Quite possibly. But it's very um, funny, just on a brief thing, because Robert Fripp, you know, and Toya do this thing on a Sunday. You know, I watch they... them, yeah, only because I really fancy Toya. But... <laughs> yes, well, God, the last one was quite extraordinary when they were doing a Metallica song. But then he was, um, they were talking about why there's no women that go to King Crimson gigs, which I thought was quite funny. Because <laughs> obviously Robert realises when he looks out that there are just a lot of old men with kind of, yeah, you know, just the... Well, I don't know, a lot, a lot of that kind of music is... All men, Genesis. We used to love Genesis when we were kids before punk came along. We still like Genesis, like, um, and we saw them a few times when we were younger. Yes. And that was all that was all blokes, you'd never see any women there, <laughs> or one or two. No, you wouldn't really. You wouldn't. But look, well, so I, then, I was gonna say, then in the 80s, when when sort of you you know, you mentioned the post-punk, and then sort of 83, the Smiths appear and things start to get really excited in the jingly jangly sort of indie pop way that the C86 mm. became. So did was that kind of scene at all on your was was on your radar, or were you sort of thinking, no, I'm gonna be one of the buzz, no, no, the Blitz kids and hang out with Spandau Valley and Steve Strange? No, no, we've sort I say any type of music I'm interested in, any music, I love every, all music, even if I hate it, that's, to me, that's a form of loving it. If it annoys me, that's just as good as it, me liking it, really, sometimes. But always generally aware of what was going on musically. Growing up, me and my friends, and we formed the band really young, last, last party, our first group. Yes. Uh, we were young then, and it was me, Kim, and Dan in my dad's <clears throat> garage in Hampton every Tuesday night we would just record songs write a song record it on whatever we had we had an old cassette recorder and we just used to make tapes like like they were albums yeah but we just filled a whole C90 or C60 so you know there'd be like 30 songs on some of them like short or long and we'd rehearse them once press record make that song and then go right let's do another one so we've we've got 
we we've started reviving a couple of the songs with our new group, Oldfield Youth Club. Actually, we've done um, "Our Flowers Will Grow," which oh, was nice. one which come out really well. And that was something we wrote forty years ago in the garage. So, because the the last party was formed, it's, it was at eighty eighty six. It started, or was it actually even before um, then? Well, we did a Mr. Hurst was our first single, but we'd already done an album. We were recording over in um, Croydon with um, chap who did uh, Goodman, Dave Goodman. He did the, the infamous Sex Pistols spunk bootleg thing. Yeah. He was involved with that. And he was kind of, he was a really nice chap. He, we were just a young band going in and recording songs and not knowing what to do with them. And he said, look, we'll just make your own album. Sod all this chasing around after record companies. And we thought, well, that's, that's a good idea. So we just saved our pennies, put them all together and made Porky's Range right. before we'd done a single. It got reviewed quite nicely in sounds. And, you know, I'm sure about three or four people bought it because of that. <laughs> and uh, so then we went on and did a single after that. So we kind of did it the other way around. Yes. But so Mr. Is... Hurst was single of the week in Melody Maker. And we, we went up to London and uh, outside John Peel's um, Radio 1 and waited for him to come out and shoved it in his hand through, through his car. He was in the car going home. Nice. And we, we said, oh, we've got a meeting with you. And he went, no, you haven't. Blah, 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 blah. I said, no, no, yeah, I'll have this. And sort of ran away embarrassed. <laughs> but he liked it and played it. So that was so good then to, get, to just give your record to John Peel. Yeah, it was like so cool. I mean, I don't know if you listened to John Peel when you were younger. Yeah, it was a kind of religious experience, really. I I never listened to it live. I'd always record it on a, a TDK D ninety cassette, just forty five minutes a night, for various reasons. Mainly because it was all new music, so it was very hard to digest it on one take. You know. So, yeah, it was quite late, wasn't it? Was it ten till twelve? Sometimes it was quite. Yeah, mostly it was quite late. They pushed it, and also it just like everything just seemed a bit like you know you'd have the Bundu boys, you know, to Roxanne Shante to the Poor Brothers to Thomas McFumo to napalm death to you know the june brides and and you know when when you hear all new music at once i find it's just a little bit hard you need to listen to the tape or recording a few times yeah. to go actually I and, I I kinda, and i got it down to that fact down to something like in one of his shows there would be one amazing record you know but the rest yeah. were good but there would be one that you'd want to kind of think i'm going to try and find that vinyl record which was sometimes quite difficult so that was my that was my vague theory to John Peel which was good I mean the odds I thought was like if you heard one record that you thought was brilliant it would be yeah it was worth the, the effort and all that so yeah oh I mean you heard so many things on there like the like Ivor Cutler I'd never heard of him until <laughs> and you're listening to John Peel and you think oh he's great you know like, like yeah. you just said the Bundu boys that that type of music I hadn't heard until John Peel came along yes um, no, it was so it was it was a gateway to all this different stuff and I think he he, he heard um, Mr Hurst our single and it was single of the week in Melody Maker so we thought oh this is this is really good um, and then we got a session on on the John Peel show two sessions we had in the end and that was so exciting to go up yes to and a did fancy you have the studio. famous Dale Griffiths yeah, yeah, Dale from uh, Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople, my God. Yeah. We were there at the Maiderfell Studios. This is um, exciting stuff. So you must have been at that stage thinking, this is it. 
we we we've kind of not made it, but you know, definitely things were moving in the right direction. Well, it's, it's always been odd like that. We never really thought we'd made it because we never, when we never did, yeah. it was always a struggle. We'd get these kind of little, little bits of sort of glory, if you like. We'd have like the single of the week, then nothing would happen for ages. Uh, and we never had a manager and we all, and it was always self-released. So uh, no one really took us up like a label and we never really went looking for them either. A couple of times we did, but we were a bit too shy with all of that sort of stuff. Yes. So, so at that stage, you know, we'd had rough trade, though that's slightly gone bankrupt. And then there was other labels, like, I suppose, I mean, there's all the obvious ones, but there was also things like Sarah, Sarah Records, Creation Records. So none of those came on your radar and went, oh, we'd love to sign you all. No, I mean, we'd, we'd never, I don't know. I mean, we don't, we never, I don't think we fit in. I still don't. I still like, I think I'm sort of um, banned from the radio or stuff. I'm a bit paranoid about it at the moment because I send all the latest stuff out um, and no one plays it anymore. So it's, uh, I don't know. We're sort of, I really don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. You're right. But we don't really get on with, labels i mean jeff travis i've pestered him down the years to be on rough trade and he won't have us on there and it's just like we don't fit in with anyone yeah uh, that's weird that is so but did... i don't mind that now after having done it all ourselves and we've now with tiny global who's really good i don't know if you know aware of those tiny global the names and of holy joy are on them and oh yes yeah the blue orchids yeah. and the nightingales uh, we all love the Nightingales and Mobile, another um, John Peel favourite, the Nightingales. Yeah. Yes. So. Did you see the film? Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Amazing, amazing film. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, Robert. I, I was hoping they could have used the bit where Robert called me a cunt when he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, he didn't mean it really. He was just mucking about. Yes, well, that's good. So when you came out with the second album, The Turn of the Decade, 1990, um, Love Handles, did you, at this stage, did you get all the, was all the material there sort of before you started going into the studio? Well, like I said, yeah, early on when we started out, when we didn't really have a name, when we weren't last party, we were, we had cassettes of, I mean, 20 or 30 cassettes with 60, 90 minutes on, all with, different songs on each. So, I mean, you're talking hundreds of songs back then. Yeah. Some that will never get finished or released or what have you. Um, so, no, there was always too much material. So, even by the time we got to doing Love Handles, there should have been an album between Porky's Range and Love Handles, if you see what I mean. There would have been enough material. So, by the time we got to Love Handles, that would be a new lot that we'd gone on to. But that was actually a good recording process because we went to a place called House in the Woods where we actually stayed and recorded like a proper band. Oh. You know, like you see the documentaries where they go to um, rock, the big rock field and all oh. that and the one in Cornwall. Um, Sawmills, is it, I think? Which friends of ours have been recorded at and we were sort of jealous of all that. So we actually paid to stay at this residential studio, House in the Woods. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great experience. I think that's probably why Love Handle sounds more of a unified sound than uh, Hawkey's Range, because it was all recorded in a week and 
mixed later on, you know, but it was all recorded at one time. And you produced it as well, or was it Simon Milton who, who sort of engineered Yeah, it was Simon, who I think he's from Alien Sex Fiend. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yes, good old goth rock there. Yeah, and then and we were at this stage with the the because it was kind of interesting because we'd had the sort of the Smiths period and then ecstasy came along, so there was that dance wave, and then you had Seattle with the kind of grunge, and uh, you know Kurt Cobain and stuff like that. So were you sort of as as the decade changed, which often feels a bit strange, but it takes a few years before you get the sense of the sort of the eighties or the nineties. Did you? Were you slightly feeling like we need to change our sound because at the moment everyone's going to be wanting something that sounds like the Pixies or Nevermind? No, no, never like that. It was the thing was we'd done we'd done Love Andals and that had sold none again, and we'd done loads of singles. I mean, we've probably done about ten singles and EPs. So we got a thing called Cacophony on Port Hampton, which is where we used to rehearse, which collects all the singles together on it's on amazon and it's on our um on our oyc band camp as well now um so yeah we've done loads and we've just thought well no one's you know we'd be sending stuff out and no one's really interested in us anymore you know we do gigs and it's difficult to get anyone along you know it's great now when people go oh, i really like last party but at the time that there was no one around really you know we'd do we did a famous gig in London, Stoke Newington, and the only people in the audience was Steve Lamack, Simon Williams, and someone else. And Steve Lamack still goes on about it now on the, on his show. Rather than play anything we've done since, he'll go, oh, the worst attended gig I ever did, that was last party. And he mentions me, like, oh, the nice singer and bought us all a drink. And I, I've emailed him, said, stop fucking going on about that. Just play our new records that I send you. But he won't. <laughs> So, yes, got yeah, so it wasn't, we never had that sort of, uh, we, we were influenced by different stuff, like, as it came along, like, talking about the Peel show, when I remember one night, and I think I heard the Gang of Four and the Fall on there, and Joy Division, I think, all on the same show, and, that, you know, they was like a epiphany sort of moment, you know, wake up, God, yes. you can, you can, you can actually sing more about what you're thinking you know a bit more be a bit more honest well that's probably not the right way to put it but you know singing in your own I'm guessing we were doing that before then but yeah I mean we've obviously the sum of our influences early on you know and then and you try and become more original as you well you don't try do you know you hopefully that's a um a natural progression yes uh, uh I'm not putting this very well, am I? But yeah, <laughs> hearing that but on I suppose, them. I suppose with a lot of lyrics, you know, at first it's like, you know, I'm, I've never had to have that experience, but I would imagine it's like, oh my God, I'm going to have to think about what I know. And it's probably going to be something, especially when you're young, it's all about relationships, isn't it, mostly? And it's all that kind of heartache, which is kind of like a bit tedious. Whereas, as, you know, the post-punk period of the Gang of Four and Magazine was a little bit different to, you know, just rhyming the moon in June. Yeah, well, Dan used to like magazine in 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 our group. Dan, our bass player, but I was not like I wasn't much keen on him. I just thought it sounded a bit like Genesis when he played me. <laughs> but I like Genesis. But yeah, yes, I don't know. But yeah, it's I, pro I put didn't put out very well when I was saying that. But obviously, we were writing about what you knew. I mean, I was thinking 
one of the early songs I wrote was about coming to get some Wellingtons when um, there was a rush on for Wellingtons in 1987 because the weather was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Great 87 Welly Rush. But yeah, um, so yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's a long process of finding your own voice properly and being confident because it's quite an embarrassing thing singing your thoughts to people and stuff. You know? Well, I know, I know Morrissey's become a bit of a, you know, character now, hasn't he? But, I, you know, I mean, when he used to, in the early days when I listened to him religiously, and he talked about that feeling of there was nothing better than, than being able to perform the words that you've written and the music that you've been rehearsing to an audience of people, devoted mm. fans. And, and, you know, I could imagine, if I try hard enough, that must feel like an incredible experience going from one minute being a nerdy person in a bedroom to suddenly a few rehearsals and then suddenly having people who are literally wanting to touch your um, ankle on stage. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've a, it's a bit of a strange thing, that, because I'm not really a shy person, but I don't, I don't really like singing in front of people and that. It, I find it all a bit comical. So sometimes when, when we'd be doing gigs and that, I'd sort of mess it all up a bit because it just seems a bit weird. And also when people are watching and they're just staring, then I get really, um, what's the word? Nervous. I just saw going through my head. Oh, they fucking hate it. They, they can't stand <laughs> it and all that. And then I start thinking, oh, what am I doing? You know, it's quite yeah, I yeah, yeah, I could imagine. I would, I would, it would I'd have a. You, you wouldn't want to get to the point where you, like you were just saying about Morrissey, with a load of fans hanging on your every word. But obviously, that is, that would be nice now and again. But I'm just generally, I'm just scared that people are hating it, is the, is the, the normal thing. And yes. that can force you to sabotage it a bit, I suppose. Well, uh, that's nothing like a bit of self doubt. So then, <laughs> I mean, um, how did the you know so with the last party or the, not the but just last party? I um, mean, did that kind of putter out then in the nineties, just around the time of Britpop? No, exactly what happened was yeah, it would have been good if we were called last party during Britpop time, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. um, so I said, I reckon nothing was selling, and we 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 rehearse every Tuesday in a factory that that where Dan worked, the bass player. We had our own room, so it was great. So we constantly could make a racket. That's why. I'm, a bit deaf nowadays um but yeah we just carried on doing stuff and we we sat down at our tea break halfway through a practice and said you know like what about just changing the name of the group so we just we were the same group and we we were thinking something along the lines of films because we're big influenced by film just as much as music a lot of the time um and so we got a book on old film studios and stuff so we were thinking pinewood ealing you know we was going to be call ourselves ealing and have the first album once more with ealing oh yes nice. uh, which would have been worth it just for the title but we chose bit of springs which was a we didn't know anything about it barely realized it was a town in australia but it was an ealing comedy well, it's not, I've watched it since, and it's awful film. I wouldn't bother watching it. Um, <laughs> Tommy Trinder was in it. Nice, um, Tommy Trinder. So was, yeah, yes. and it was, uh, it was in a little town called Bitter Springs in Australia. Not a very good film, not a very memorable film. No. So that's where we took the name from. Um, and we, I just thought, 
oh, bitter and springs. I just thought, oh, they, they sound good together, you know. Very English to me, not Australian. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what when we became Bitter Springs and started again, which was which was good, really. It was Neil's idea to change the name. Dan wasn't bothered, and I was thinking, yeah, we need to do something. Yeah. But I came up with the name, but and we I all thought, because, yeah, okay, then let's do it. Having done this show for you know quite a long time now, I mean, most bands have you know. That, that five-year narrative, you know, the, the classic kind of the honeymoon pay, phase of like 12 months of rehearsing and feeling optimistic. And then mm. in the 80s, again, you know, this is slightly different. I don't, God knows what happens now. Um, but, you know, getting that sort of flexi-disc or the John Peel play and then the John Peel session. And then, you know, that kind of goes to the, the next, which is the album. And also, you know, every town and city in you know England Britain would have um, you know a venue you know an alternative night and so you've got sometimes you know to go around the, the country in a transit van getting back at five in the morning but that yeah. kind of gave gives people that little bit of oomph and often it's the second album which is the classic cliche followed by the fact that everyone hates each other and there's no money so you break up but you've obviously got kind of stamina and staying power here haven't you well yeah I, there is something that kept us going I mean because we had to, sometimes we'd do like a, a car boot sale and stuff to get money just to get a couple of hours in the studio. Any, you know, anything like that. But, but we all worked. So we had our wages coming in and we would put it towards what we were doing. But you're right, we never made any money and we had to pay for everything ourselves. And, and we'd do a gig and it would be so poorly attended. We'd bring a record out and think, yeah, this is going to be great. This will sell loads. And it, it's the same story every time. But then we've had this sort of thing where we just go, right, fuck it. Let's get on with the next one. Yes. This so in the end, we've built up kind of a, a huge catalogue now over the years of hundreds of songs. And we've not been, we've not had the constraints or, or, the, or the, the, the fact that having a label, like we've had friends on labels and they've split up because... They've had heaps of money spent on them, you know, £90,000 on a video. £90,000 would have enabled us to make 10 albums, 20 yeah. albums. Um, so we... and, 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 and one with the Philharmonic Orchestra, probably a sort of a prog <laughs> exploration, a, a so jazz we, fusion, we... a jazz fusion. You know, so we don't, we're not really part, I don't see us as part of yes. a band even, really. Yeah, it's, it's odd, you know, it, but we've, yeah, it is a strange thing, but I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. It's good. It's better this way. It's better that we haven't had major success. Because like you said, we we would have split up and we would have hated each other. But the only thing now is me and Dan, the bass player, we fell out when it, things got a bit tough. And that's a bit of a shame. But um, yeah. And on that cliff, cliffhanger, we're going to have to just stop there. That is part one. Part two is coming up soon. But a big thank you to Simon Rivers for giving me the first 30 minutes of his life story. We have part two coming up very soon. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, C86 Show. And all these have been archived. True story. Find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, look, stay safe. 